Welcome to Sea to Shining Sea, a podcast on the American Discovery Trail and walking coast to coast across the USA. This is episode three. I'm Dave Whitson. Quote, to pick out one adjective or even a group of adjectives and say, this is Maryland, is of course impossible. Natives rarely try to define the state's individuality, outsiders try too hard, and to existing knowledge have not yet succeeded. English? Yes, for its conservatism, stolidity. Southern? Yes, in its frequent lassitude, its willingness to sacrifice prospects of progress to known, safe comforts. Northern? Yes, in its occasional outbursts of efficiency and industry. Maryland is all of these, and more. Maryland is the eastern shore to New Yorkers who have found haven in handsome tidewater homes. Maryland is Hartford, Baltimore, or Howard County to others who come for hunting and racing. Maryland is the Chesapeake Bay to fishermen and lovers of crabs and oysters. Maryland is terrapin and good whiskey to gourmets. Maryland is only Baltimore to thousands of Americans who pass through the state's metropolis and wonder at its rows of white steps, its remaining gas-lighted street lamps, or its areas of crumbling residences. Or Maryland may be Annapolis to the tourist who comes to see the midshipmen during June week. End quote. So opens the WPA Guide to Maryland, published by the Federal Writers Project in 1940 as part of a Depression-era initiative to create jobs and promote both tourism and American identity. Maryland was the fourth colony to be established in the U.S., the seventh state to ratify the Constitution, and it's the second state to be encountered for those walking westward on the American Discovery Trail, interrupted only briefly by a jaunt through Washington, D.C., the ADT's approach through Maryland tells a history of transportation in America, with the spotlight alternately shining on sea, rail, air, canal, and, of course, we can never escape roads. Indeed, it'll require at least a short trip in a car to make it across the 4.3-mile-long Chesapeake Bay Bridge. In this episode, I speak with three experts on the American Discovery Trail in Maryland. First, we'll hear from Peter Shutley, ADT State Coordinator for Maryland. He's followed by Donna Loop, who has the same role for D.C. Finally, Alexander Lothstein of the Maryland Historical Society joins me to share some insights into Maryland's past, with a special focus on places on the ADT's route through the state. Thanks for joining me. Peter Shutley is the state coordinator for Maryland for the American Discovery Trail, and he joins me now to talk about the state of Maryland. Thanks for talking with me for the podcast, Peter. Sure, happy to do so. How did you find your way onto the American Discovery Trail? Well, it was sort of an accident. Uh, <laughs> I'm uh, originally from California, where I've done lots of outdoor hiking and backpacking. And I've lived in other parts of the world where I've done lots of mountain climbing and outdoors. Mm -hmm. And I retired a few years ago after two different careers, and I wanted to look for something to do. In some place, I saw an ad for the American Discovery Trail. I don't even remember <laughs> where I saw the ad, but I said, you know, trails, that's great. I mean, I've always loved trails, mm -hmm. and if I can do something to help the American Discovery Trail, so I just volunteered. And then it turned out that the previous state coordinator for Maryland was elderly and had become inactive, and so they needed one. Mm -hmm. I had no clue what that entailed, <laughs> and they sort of said, we'll do it. 
And so I said, well, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how I ended up uh, getting involved with the trail. But I think, you know, hikes and biking and long-distance biking and hikes are phenomenal, and so Mm -hmm. that's what I enjoy. What does being a state coordinator involve? Well, a number of things. One aspect of it is to help hikers and bikers on the trail. In other words, they will call you up and email you and say, hey, I'm going to do this trail in Maryland next February. Mm -hmm. Any advice you can give? And so I try to share some thoughts. Mm -hmm. And there's little weird problems come up, like the CNO Canal, which is a real jewel, I think, in the whole American Discovery Trail, I mean, among the whole coast to coast, but it's a highlight here in Maryland. Mm -hmm. They turn off the water, they meaning the National Park Service folks, rangers, uh, so it doesn't freeze. So the pipes and water fountains don't freeze in the winter. Mm-hmm. Well, most of the hikers that do the trail start in February. Right. And the reason for starting so early in the year, you know, I've had people that get three or four snowstorms mm-hmm. as they go across Maryland and West Virginia, is to be able to make it across the Rockies. Right. I mean, it takes a long time to get way out there. And if you start in late spring, early summer, you're never going to make it to the Rockies before they're covered with snow. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you got the Sierras after that. (laughs) So little things like that. Then sometimes there's bridges that are out. There's detours. Mm -hmm. Trying to keep up with that. But I spend a good part of my time, because I live in the suburbs outside of D.C., as the congressional liaison for the Discovery Trail. And what that entails is trying to talk to members of Congress. We're trying to pass a bill that would make the American Discovery Trail an official part of the U.S. national trail system. And last year, or early this year, we were really lucky We've been working with the folks in the Senate, and two senators included a small provision in this giant public lands bill Mm -hmm. that was passed by the Senate early this year and then the House and signed by President Trump. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's 650 pages, and the (laughs) American Discovery Trail is only two paragraphs. (laughs) But they're two critical paragraphs. And what they do is they order the two key secretaries, Secretary of Interior Department and Secretary of Agriculture Department, that they have to put up signs, Mm. work with us to put up signs. And that's been one of our major challenges because this is a huge trail. I mean, 6,800 miles, and it's not signed very well. There's Mm -hmm. a few places where there are signs. You know, just little dinky trail signs that fit the pattern of the U.S. national trail system. It's kind of a curved triangle. Mm -hmm. And the Park Service policy was that each park superintendent had the authority to decide on whether or not to allow signs. Mm -hmm. It was just totally decentralized. (laughs) So the CNO Canal is a good example of the problem. The previous superintendent there said, sure, allow signs. Ten years ago, a new guy became the super there, (laughs) and he says, I don't like signs. So he ripped them all out. (laughs) And so I run into these really strange and weird and unfortunate situations where I'm talking to staffers on the Hill, and I'm saying, you know, have you uh, ever been on the Discovery Trail? Mm -hmm. And they say, no, I don't think I've ever been on it. 
And then I said, well, have you been on the CNO Canal, mm -hmm. which starts in downtown D.C.? Oh, sure. <laughs> you know, I've been on it lots of times. It's great to bike and hike there in the weekends and wonderful chance to get out, enjoy nature. And then I say, well, you've been on the trail, mm -hmm. the American Discovery Trail, without knowing it. And so the purpose of these two paragraphs was to order the two secretaries to work with us. We'll provide the signs. We'll give them free to the government. Mm -hmm. But just install those darn signs so that people <laughs> can, you know, find the trail like they know they're on it. Yeah. And so that just got passed. So we're now at that point of working with the two departments to, to try to implement that. And that's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, when you do it next year, you'll discover there's just, we have great turn-by-turn -turn directions and mm -hmm. maps and stuff, but there's no signs on signposts and road mm -hmm. signs that say, you know, American Discovery Trail, turn right. Not very many of them. Big problem. And so I'm working on that on the Hill to do another bill that implements that further. That's fantastic. It seems like everything in America today is, is hyper-partisan. Is this something that's drawing bipartisan support? Yes, it is bipartisan. That's exciting. The bill got introduced by a Republican from Lincoln, Nebraska. Jeff Fortenberry is his name. Mm -hmm. And the two initial co-sponsors are two Democrats. And kind of interesting, at both ends of the trail, the Pacific end is Jared Huffman, mm -hmm. Democrat from California. And the Atlantic end is Lisa Blunt Rochester, a Democrat from Delaware. And so, it's yes, it's bipartisan. <laughs> but what's interesting is, as I talk to people on the Hill, you discover the different moods in the country, the different, how, how the country is split mm -hmm. and divided. And an example of that would be, most folks I talk to about this, when I explain this new House Bill 726, it's really dinky. All it does is make the trail an official part of the U.S. trail system mm -hmm. and make it as a discovery trail. And they say, well, who's against that? How could anybody be against it? I mean, this is sort of, isn't this common sense? And that's the reaction I get in most places. Mm -hmm. But in a few parts out west, and I'm thinking of the western slope of Colorado, the Rockies there, most of Utah and parts of Nevada, and then parts of eastern California, east of the Sierras. Mm -hmm. Those folks have an attitude toward the federal government, which is distrustful. Mm. They hate the government. Oh, we don't want the feds. Mm. Uh, you know, we hate the feds. They're just trying to take over everything. And I try to explain them, no, that we're not doing this at all. You know, we're just making this a part of the trail to facilitate putting up signs. Yeah. And, and they say, well, you guys are going to take over the whole thing, you know, and the feds already own I don't know what the percentage is, 80% of Utah yeah, or, you know, 85% of Nevada. And we don't want them to own any more. And then I try to say, well, we're not taking over any land. We're not converting state or private land to federal land. We're not buying any land. The trail is there. It exists. We just want to make it official mm -hmm. so that when the Interior Department prints their maps and stuff, we're part of that. And they say, well, you know, you got hidden motives. And, mm -hmm. and in fact, I ran into one guy a couple of years ago, a staffer for the House Committee on Natural Resources, who said, your secret agenda is to defeat the Keystone Pipeline, <laughs> you know, which I almost fell out of my chair when I heard that. I mean, this is a dinky little, you know, it's a footpath, a yeah. bike path. And the Keystone Pipeline is a big, big thing. And we've got major interstates you know, highways that are going east and west. And I'm thinking, boy, if they don't cross, you know, are they perpendicular to this 
Keystone Pipeline. What's a little trail to do? No, no, no. Your real goal is to defeat the Keystone Pipeline. Yeah. And 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 you just see how the country is split ideologically. Mm-hmm. And it's not easy to persuade some of the folks out there that you know this is a good deal. But anyway, mm-hmm. I spend a lot of my time working with staffers on the Hill trying to persuade them to to do this. Yeah. And then sometime I you know checking out the routes in Maryland, but mm-hmm. I have less time for that. Well, let's let's see what we can do on that front and talk a little bit about what the ADT is like within your state. Before we jump into the route itself, help me out here as I'm saying to a lot of people as I talk with them in these initial conversations. I'm a West Coaster through and through. I've spent my life on the West Coast. I had one night All passing right. through Baltimore at one point in my life, and I haven't spent much time in Maryland <laughs> otherwise. So, uh, so, right. so I'll have a lot to discover there. But just bring me up to speed a little bit. What should I know? What should every American know about the state of Maryland? Well, I think it's a great state. Uh, like you, I'm a Westerner. As I said, I grew up in California mm-hmm. and did lots of hiking in the Sierras. Here, we don't have you know those kind of majestic mountains, rocks, alpine-like granite mountains. Here, they're old, rounded Appalachian hills. But Maryland has some great places. If you start on the Delaware line, the first stretch of the American Discovery Trail is basically farmland. Mm-hmm. Uh, small towns, historic towns that have been around for... 100, 200 years, rolling farmland. Now, the disadvantage compared to out west is there's not big ranges of forests or outdoors Mm -hmm. where you can easily pitch a tent. (laughs) There's no campgrounds. I mean, there's a few, but not many. It's privately owned, you know, farmland. And so finding a place to camp overnight can be a challenge. Mm -hmm. The, The good part of it is people that get started, often they're not in the best physical shape. I mean, some have done done training, some haven't. And so this is easy. It's flat. (laughs) It's not even rolling. It's basically flat Uh, between the Chesapeake Bay and the Atlantic Ocean. Very easy bike riding. Mm -hmm. You can make a good mileage in those stretches. But it's farmland, and finding a place to stay is not easy. There's little towns. There's motels. You can stay there. There's a, a state park, Tuckahoe State Park, with a shelter Mm-hmm. with the American Discovery Trail sighing in it close to a little pond there, a little lake. And that's kind of nice, but it's not spectacular. It's not like Lake Tahoe or anything like that. And then you come to the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. That sounds like a problem. That is the only <laughs> obstacle that you can't walk across in the U.S. because it's you know four lanes of roads mm-hmm. for cars, and they don't allow pedestrians on it. And people call me, hikers call me and say, oh, geez, how do I get across? (laughs) And I say, well, most people just put out their thumb and hitchhike, you know, with a sign. You need some kind of a sign that says I'm crossing the U.S. on foot. Mm -hmm. And they get picked up by a truck or a pickup truck or a car and taken across and then dropped off on the western side. And, Mm -hmm. And then you're real close to Annapolis. I've never heard of somebody not getting a ride, you know, saying, geez, I spent hours there and nobody picked. I've never heard of that. I mean, they know, the the drivers know that no pedestrians, so they're very helpful. And then they get dropped off on the western side, real close to Annapolis, which is a real jewel. I mean, that's where the Navy Academy is, the Naval Academy. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the oldest state capitals in the country. Uh, Quaint, cute little town, interesting stores. Again, it's not easy to, there's no place to camp. Mm -hmm. It's not a wilderness. That's different from out west. You know, you don't have 
areas outside the town where you can just sort of hide and find it. But I think you should stay in a motel or something there. Now, a little bit west of Annapolis, the stretch from Annapolis to uh, Washington, D.C. is interesting. There's a river called the Patuxent River, which is the border between the first county that Annapolis is in, Anne Arundel County, Mm -hmm. and the next county, Prince George's County, which is on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. And there's a little park and I think it's supposed there's a sign there that it's only for uh, like day use, not overnight. But the bridge there is out. <laughs> and so what I mean by out is it's under repair. Okay. And cars can't cross it. So there's no traffic at all. As a hiker and a biker, you can just step over these Jersey barriers and, and cross this little river. Okay. Uh, and that keeps out the traffic. So th- this little park is a wonderful place to stay overnight. <laughs> called Governor Ridge Park. Nice. And then you go there, and the next day you reach another little national park, which is Greenbelt National Park, and that's right on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. It's basically a forest of, I don't know how many square miles, not very large. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised it's a national park. But Greenbelt is interesting. It's one of these planned town communities in the east here, planned by Eleanor Roosevelt. Hmm. sort of a design community. It didn't exist before Eleanor Roosevelt and a few others sort of created this town in, I don't know, the late 30s. And then from there, it's an easy one-day hike into Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And now uh, this is all suburbs. I mean, so it's not exciting, but people are friendly <laughs> and helpful. And you begin to enter the city. And then you start with the CNO Canal. And I think this is one of the real jewels. Mm-hmm. Very easy hike because it's basically flat. And what you're walking or biking on is the towpath. Mm-hmm. The CNO Canal, you had these non motorized barges, basically, that were pulled by mules, you know, long ropes <laughs> and mules. Yep along the side of the canal. And there was a competition between them and the railroads. The CNO Canal and the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad were both sort of started at about the same time. And so it was a race between the canal and the railroad as to who was going to get through the Appalachian Mountains first Mm -hmm. to the Ohio River. So all the grain trade goods from the Ohio Valley could be brought to the Chesapeake Bay, the Atlantic coast, and shipped. Mm -hmm. And the railroad won. (laughs) You know, so the canal is there, but it's really historic, interesting. They had houses every few miles Mm -hmm. where lock house captains or, or managers lived there. And it was these manager's job to man the locks. So when these barges would come, they'd have to open and close the locks to raise and lower the boats. And you can see all that. I mean, not the the raising and the lowering, (laughs) but the locks, they're still in pretty good shape. The houses are there. People can stay overnight in those houses if you make a reservation. Now, you know, no electricity. These are 1850 type houses, but they're interesting. And and this takes you past Harper's Ferry, Mm -hmm. which is obviously hugely historic. Pre-Civil War, major events happened there. Yep. Again, cute little historic towns. You want to stay and stop there and see the town. And the Appalachian Trail crosses the American Discovery Trail right there in Harper's Ferry. Yeah. So that's another interesting thing because a lot of people do the Appalachian Trail, but not that many do the American Discovery Trail. Mm -hmm. And then almost before the end of the C&O Canal, you cross a little bridge across the Potomac and you enter into 
West Virginia from this town called Old Town, mm -hmm. but it's, I don't know the exact miles, 150 or something like that, on the CNO Canal. Yeah. And most of the hikers that I've talked to, and so they just love it. It's one of the, the most interesting sections in the whole 6,800 miles because you're along this beautiful stretch, Potomac River on your south, uh, on your left, and the canal on the right, and sometimes little towns where you can buy provisions, mm -hmm. but not many, and it's great. Yeah. So I hope that gives you sort of a flavor. That's exciting. Yeah, I'm ready. Now, now one thing I would, you know, people considering it, I would recommend do a bike backpacking combination. Hmm. In other words, bike through these farmland stretches on the eastern shore. You make many more miles. You know, you can do between 50, 100, maybe even more than that, depending on what shape you're in. And, and it saves you the problem of where do you stay overnight? Yeah. And also biking, a lot of bikers on the CNO Canal. Mm -hmm. So you get lots of mileage that way. And then when you get into the mountains in the Rockies in California, West Virginia and so on, that's when you uh, do backpacking. Gotcha. Or some people do a push cart, mm -hmm. but that's harder in the mountains. Yeah. But that's one recommendation I would have, do a biking-hiking combination. Hmm. You mentioned before the issues that can occur with water on the CNO Canal right. in February. And I've also read some trail journals that talk about flooding along there. So right. uh, how, how common is that? And, and how, what are your suggestions for walkers for how they manage those two challenges? For walking, the last few people that hikers that I've encountered take, you know, several, take two gallons of water in your push cart or something. And they've said they've made it. Okay. In that stretch. Now, obviously, there's water there. There's the Potomac River, yep. which is a lot cleaner than it used to be, you know, 30, <laughs> 40 years ago. Yeah. Huge improvement. But it's still, you know, there's towns upriver, mm -hmm. and you need a filter if you're going to take it out of there. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes the CNO Canal. Now, different parts of the canal water, some are flowing, some are stagnant. Lots and lots and lots of turtles. One hmm. of the little pleasures there is on warm days, Dozens of water turtles, snapping turtles, painted turtles, crawl up on sunken logs wow. and just sun themselves and dry out. And you'll see herons and eagles and all kingfishers, all kinds of birds. And you can get some water there, but you need either iodine pills or filters to make sure you have enough. But if you go a little later, sometime in April is usually when they turn on the pumps. Gotcha. And there's lots of campgrounds. You know, every, I don't know, eight miles, ten miles, there's another campground. So that's one challenge. Now, the, the, the problem with the washout is that we get hurricane winds and rains <laughs> up here. Not often, not like the south, but, you know, every five, eight, ten years. And we've had a few, and so this rushing water down the canal, parts of the canal are man-made. In other words, there's a, a wall, a levee where they built up this wall between the Potomac River and the canal. And once in a rare while, those burst due to the floodwaters. And, and the, usually the Park Service is pretty good in repairing those. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, it's just a trickle, and you have to sort of walk through a muddy part or something like that. And then sometimes they put in detour signs. Hmm. So it's not impossible. It's not insurmountable. You know, it's like if you're hiking out west and there's a little stream, that kind of a thing. And you've got that experience out west. But that does happen. But the Park Service is pretty good in repairing those. Gotcha. Well, let's zoom out some bigger picture questions to wrap up. First, in terms of timing, obviously, as you said, if someone's through hiking, they're probably going to be in Maryland in February or March. But 
if they weren't through hiking, if they were just section hiking and they could pick any time of the year, when would you say they should walk in Maryland? Oh, the two best seasons here, and same as in Washington, D.C., are spring and fall. Mm -hmm. The spring is phenomenal. Flowers everywhere, birds coming out, lots of interesting birds. And, of course, the cherry blossoms are famous in D.C. Fall is beautiful. It's bright colors. The weather's perfect. Temperature's great. Beautiful colors, leaves, foliage, mm -hmm. uh, migrating birds. You can see up, look up and you see all kinds of geese in these V formations. So fall is phenomenal here. Mm -hmm. Two best season. The summer, it's pretty hot and humid. Yeah. It doesn't mean you can't do it, but you're going to sweat. Uh, <laughs> hot and humid. And, of course, the winter, it's snowy and cold and brown, and, and you won't see <laughs> very many animals in the canal. Yeah. But, no, fall and spring is prime time. The beauty of long-distance walking is that everything tastes good when you're that hungry. But um, <laughs> but what in particular should uh, walkers in Maryland be on the lookout for food-wise? Well, if you manage to you know stay in a motel or a hotel in one of these towns, Annapolis or on the eastern shore in Denton or something, crab cakes. Mm -hmm. The Chesapeake Bay has fantastic blue crabs, and they taste differently than your Dungeness crabs out west. Hmm. I would say they're significantly tastier <laughs> than than your Western crabs. And, you know, they make crab cake, and that's a local specialty. Mm -hmm. It's really good. But let me say one other thing about the American Discovery Trail. Please do. Which is the vision of the trail and why we want public support to have folks tell their members of Congress to support making the trail official. The Appalachian Trail which is a phenomenal trail, you know, on the Appalachian Ridge from Georgia to Maine, was started in the 20s. Mm -hmm. It didn't become official until this law was passed in 1968. Wow. And now, thank God, it's, a, you know, one of the jewels of American culture, American history, American outdoors, mm -hmm. same as the Pacific Crest Trail out there in the West. And thank God those people you know, 100 years ago said, hey, we should have a trail. Mm -hmm. And it took them a long time to get the land and put it together, put up signs and shelters. What I want is people 30, 40, 50 years from now to look back as the American Discovery Trail gets well known and gets a lot of usage, just local stretches, not the whole thing. Mm -hmm. People to say, boy, thank God those people back in the 20 teens put together this trail and made it official, because if they hadn't, it would have all been bought up and divided up into subdivisions and homes and towns and cities, and it wouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. So thank God they made this trail work, you know, many years ago, because now we've got it. Because mm -hmm. once you lose it, you can't get it back. So that's sort of a long-term vision, which is one of the things that motivates me, but also I think motivates a lot of other folks. It also strikes me that the ADT is just fundamentally different from the Appalachian Trail or the PCT because it's not a wilderness trek. Well, well, you're absolutely right. You know, one of the challenges when I'm on the Hill is explaining this. I say we want to make it official, and the Park Service studied this back in 94 to 96. What should they do about this American Discovery Trail? Their conclusion was this is a phenomenal trail. We want it. It should be part of the U.S. national trail system. But, and here's the problem, the trail system has two kinds of trails. It has wilderness scenic, mm -hmm. like you just mentioned, Appalachian or Pacific Crest or 
Continental Divide Trail. This mm-hmm. isn't wilderness. <laughs> I mean, it goes through downtown Oakland, San Francisco, Denver, D.C., mm-hmm. St. Louis. It's not wilderness. Second kind of trail is historic, like Oregon Trail or Santa Fe Trail. Mm-hmm. This isn't historic. So the Park Service said, well, it's not wilderness and scenic. It's not historic. So let's create a third category called discovery. Hmm. You discover the U.S. And that's what happened. And that's the second part of this bill we're working on. Make it official as a discovery trail. You know, not a scenic trail, not a historic trail, but a discovery trail. And we're hoping that'll work this year. That's awesome. Well, Peter, thanks for all of your work at the federal level to bring attention, resources, funding, legislation to this. And thanks as well for talking with me about Maryland. I'm excited to get out there and, and, and get walking. Good luck and hope to run into you again. Donna Loop is the state coordinator for the American Discovery Trail in Washington, D.C. I guess we'll use state loosely in that definition. And she joins me to talk about the ADT in D.C. Thanks for joining me, Donna. Thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to talk with you. It's exciting to get to talk with you, both because of your role as the coordinator for Washington, D.C., and then also because uh, you have quite an extensive background with the ADT. So maybe we'll start there with the big picture and then gradually zoom into D.C. And what first drew you to the American Discovery Trail? Well, I remember it distinctly. I had moved to D.C. from the great state of Montana in 1989, and in 1991, I read an article in the Washington Post about the scouting team, Eric and Ellen and another individual who were scouting the trail, this thing called the American Discovery Trail, the nation's first coast-to-coast hiking and biking trail. And Mm -hmm. just reading about that and reading that this thing existed really sparked my imagination. And I was just so captivated by it. I have a long tree of love of the outdoors and endurance events. And I just thought this sounded like the coolest thing. So (laughs) I first heard about it in 1991. And yeah, and then in the year 2000, I was looking on the internet, I, I have a conservation background as a profession, and I found the American Discovery Trail's website, and they were advertising for an executive director. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was working in a law firm in Washington, D.C., and it kind of piqued my interest just because my real background is in conservation. I worked for the Nature Conservancy for six years. Got it. And I kind of thought about the executive director position, and then I decided not to. And then, sure enough, a couple months later, looking at the same website, They were advertising for four individuals to be a part of this American Discovery Trail Ford Adventure Team, otherwise known as the ADT FAT, to travel across the country for five months promoting the grand opening of said American Discovery Trail. And I thought, well, why don't I just throw my hat in the ring, see what happens? It sounds like fun. And lo and behold, I was chosen and then had to work at a law firm, which meant I had to leave the job at the law firm. And then, yeah, had this great trip across the country, which I'm sure you'll ask me more about. Yeah, I'm curious about that because I found an article online about it and I've been trying to wrap my mind around what this was like because you you weren't actually walking across the ADT, right? You were thrust into this group spending five months together just traveling around the country. Like describe what that experience was like. Yeah, um, being thrust together is a good way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I found the advertisement for being a team member to do this uh, promotion because the American Discovery Trail Society decided that the time was right to really promote the grand opening of the trail from coast to coast. And one of the major objectives of the team and its work was to travel. And yes, Ford donated a a sport track, a little sport utility vehicle for our use for this. So we actually drove from Delaware to California and did Northern Loop, Southern Loop. But along the way, we were doing hikes and bike rides and talking to school kids and mainly recognizing the local trail groups and the local citizens who had been developing the trails that are the connection that make the American Discovery Trail what it is. It's really a connection of a lot of these state and local trails, regional trails, uh, National Park Service, BLM land trails in the national forests. So, yeah, our job was really just promoting and thanking and recognizing a lot of these great folks across the country who had done so much work that made the American Discovery Trail what it is. But back to being thrust together. If you can imagine four individuals, two women and two men who had never met each other before, being selected to be on this team for their various experiences and capabilities, met, I think, once, no, twice before the trip actually started. And we met with the executive director of the American Discovery Trail Society and some of the board members and just found out what they were interested in us doing. And then, lo and behold, we each make our way to Lewis, Delaware, and we have a couple days with the American Discovery Trail Board of Directors mm-hmm. and learn what exactly it is they want us to do. And then, yeah, the four of us are thrust together in this fairly small SUV and spend the next five months, 24-7, <laughs> pretty much together. And, you know, it worked out, I'd say, amazingly. I mean, a great group of people. We really worked well together. I mean, there's always going to be moments, but no, it was, it was a great experience and I don't think it could have worked out better. Take us into a couple moments from that trip. When you close your eyes and reflect back on this barnstorming tour, five months, all these different landing spots across America, what sticks out? Well, so many things stick out. I kept a journal during the trip. Thank goodness, because I'm just looking at what we did. And, you know, a lot of it is just like, oh, yeah, now I remember we met with those (laughs) folks or, yeah, we did this. So, yeah, a couple things. I remember a rainy day in Cincinnati. We were with the Ohio State Director and we met some local trails folks. And I'm sure that probably some of the society board members were there. And I remember it was raining and there was a great group picture. And then there's a bridge that connects Cincinnati with Covington, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And we walked across the bridge and Covington was really a cool place. I should mention that one of my long-term interests is neon signs and architecture. (laughs) So this trip was a fabulous opportunity for me to see and take pictures of lots of really cool signs and architecture. And I just remember Covington was really full of, you know, this era gone by that you don't see anymore on their main street. You know, there are quite a few cool little signs and local mom and pop shops. And Mm -hmm. and that was just really a, a great experience. So anyway, that was one that I came across in my journal. And another cool experience for me was we went through Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and that's my hometown. Mm hmm. 
And so we got to see some of my friends and I got to see my mom and some of our friends are very active in the trails organization. So it was really fun for us to recognize them and and hike on the Cedar Valley Nature Trail and the Hoover Trail. Those are two components of the American Discovery Trail. So that was another cool experience. Zooming out to California, we also yeah. um, climbed Half Dome in Yosemite, and <laughs> Yosemite's not on the on the route, but definitely took side trips, <laughs> and that's part of what this is all about, too. You know, you're traveling along, you don't have to stay on the trail or the route, you know, you get to explore other parts of um, America, too. So climbing Half Dome was really a great experience, and the, the view on the top was amazing. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, um, our last days when we were at Limantour Beach, Point Reyes, and had completed the five-month tour and just all the experiences we had on the American Discovery Trail Society, had a board meeting there, and it that was really kind of a nice culmination of experiences. And I, I should mention that typically when hikers start the trip and end the trip, they dip their toes or whatever mm-hmm. other body parts <laughs> they'd like to in the Atlantic Ocean and then the Pacific, or if they're going west to east, the Pacific and then the Atlantic. So we did that in Lewis at Cape Henlopen State Park, where the trail starts in the east. And then we also did that at Point Reyes in the Pacific Ocean, where it ends in California. There's obviously a great American tradition of the road trip. And lots of Americans at some point in their life will drive across a big chunk of this country. But maybe something different about your experience is the degree to which you were being immersed in local communities that that like you said, that was the point of this trip is to connect with people across every state. So this is a pretty deep way of connecting with a wide swath of America. Looking back, how did this experience change or affect the way you think about this country? I mean, it was amazing, and I should note that the trail actually goes through 15 states and D.C., Mm -hmm. and I lived in D.C. for 12 years before moving to Virginia, and I have a very strong perspective about the whole statehood need (laughs) and the taxation without representation, because I noticed what you said earlier, and that's what we said in our promotional stuff. It's 15 states and Washington, D.C., so I can get on my high horse about that whole subject, but we'll keep it apolitical for now. As you might imagine, and I've heard this from folks who have through-hiked the whole trail as well, or biked like Bill and Lori Foote did, mm-hmm. just you meet great people who are, you know, go out of their way to make you feel good about yourself and good about being American, and just the vast diversity of landscapes mm-hmm. and people is amazing. And Yeah, I agree. I I love road trips. And this was, as you also said, quite a specific road trip. We were going along particular routes and we were actually quite overscheduled sometimes as far as meeting with one group here. And then we had to be somewhere else, you know, in an hour and it was actually a two hour drive. But it was really amazing to see how vast and beautiful and diverse this country is, both its people and, you know, the landscapes. Mm -hmm. One thing I was a little disappointed about that I noted was that chain stores are everywhere now. (laughs) I understand that they serve a purpose, but it really got a little discouraging traveling through so many towns where you would see the same strip malls and the same fast food joints. Mm -hmm. And when there was a mom and pop or a cool old sign, it was really cool. It felt a little more unique when you got into the the differences in how America used to look and how it looks now. Mm. 
Yeah, I've been going through Google Maps for a lot of the places I'll be walking through, and it has occurred to me that I will be relying on Dollar General quite a bit for food. There absolutely is a great reason for these places to be where they are, (laughs) and certainly supplying folks on a trek of this type is certainly helpful. And I have to say, I started liking Walmart, too, during this trip. (laughs) Because, you know, we'd go in and we'd get a bunch of stuff we needed, and it was kind of a one-stop shop sometimes. So (laughs) anyway, different perspectives depending on uh, how you're feeling. Yeah, absolutely. So let's uh, let's zoom in now from the national level to D.C. specifically. And I can anticipate already part of your answer to this first question, but let's let's start here nonetheless. You are the state coordinator for Washington, D.C., and uh, I was laughing just thinking about, you know, you're the state coordinator for D.C. There are state coordinators for, like, Kansas and uh, Colorado that have hundreds and hundreds of miles and you have maybe what 10 miles of of route total so uh, that seems pretty cool. (laughs) How, How did you end up in this position and what's it like being the state coordinator for DC? Well the way I ended up in this position is that the American Discovery Trail Society used to combine Maryland and DC as the purview of one state coordinator and that was the way it was for quite a while and then In 2011, the society decided it would make sense to split up Maryland and D.C., Mm -hmm. and Ellen Dudley, who was part of the scouting team, suggested me just because because I was on the, (laughs) the FAT team. I actually am a member of the board and a state coordinator. There's a few of us who wear two hats. And it is a great thing. There are about 15 miles of the ADT that goes through Washington, D.C., and if you're going east to west, you come in from Maryland and you're actually on some some fairly, you know, busy roads and highways. Mm-hmm. And then you're coming into the northeast quadrant of Washington, D.C. And pretty quickly you get off just on some local streets with some very interesting architecture. And there are some Civil War parks, greenways that have been set aside. And you go right through a, one of our major metro stations on your way to the northwest quadrant and then when you get there you're again just on some in some local neighborhoods which is great and then you finally connect to rock creek park which is part of the national park service and it exists thanks to teddy roosevelt when he was president he was very fond of fishing in rock creek and as you know he was a well-known conservationist and it was his desire to set aside that chunk of land that's Mm -hmm. pretty linear Uh, that we now call Rock Creek Park, and it's a very, very popular place for recreation and bikers and hikers and walkers and people with strollers and dogs and everything. (laughs) So the American Discovery Trail comes down along Beach Drive, along some side trails, and then it connects in Georgetown, a very historic part of Washington. It connects with the CNO Canal National Historic Park, also managed by the National Park Service. And this is a, a linear trail that goes right along the CNO Canal for 185 miles from its start in Georgetown all the way to Cumberland, Maryland. And there's about four and a half miles of the CNO that in DC that's part of the American Discovery Trail. And then there's quite a few miles in Maryland as part of the ADT. But it's really it's a great area of town, great area of trail. And last September, after our board meeting out in Oakland, I was asked to field check the route 
going from west to east just to check the waypoints and the descriptions and things like that. Another project we're working on right now is getting the turn-by-turn directions and the waypoints for the whole west-to-east direction as opposed to the east-to-west. So it was really fun. I uh, started in Georgetown. I had already checked the canal and then went up Rock Creek Park and then got out to the connection with Maryland. And it was really fun. And, you know, it was a Sunday, I think, and lots and lots of people out and enjoying nature in this metropolitan area. So it's it's a great thing. So it's not a hideous urban sprawl. It's nice walking through D.C. It's great walking. And when I moved here in 1989, I was amazed at how green this place is. Green meaning that the metropolitan area that's Virginia, D.C. and Maryland, otherwise known as the DMV, has set aside some great places. And I think Arlington, Virginia was rated number one for walkability. Hmm. So I am really impressed with what the scouting team did because obviously going coast to coast, there's a lot of options for a lot of different routes in these places. And uh, this is a great route through the nation's capital. And depending on how much time someone wanted to spend here, you know, they certainly could go to the National Mall and check out museums and the great restaurants. It's kind of been my experience with folks, especially traveling east to west, that this is fairly early in their journey. And they kind of choose to zoom through and not spend a, a lot of time here. But Obviously, there's tons of history and culture here in the nation's capital if you wanted to spend some extra extra days or weeks on your trip. And that seems like one of the, the challenging pieces to manage as a thru-hiker is you're passing through some incredibly important places, places loaded with history and interesting things to see, but you have to manage the timing and, and getting, for example, to Utah at the right time, California at the right time, um, the Rockies, and, and so you, you don't want to linger too long. If someone were looking at D.C. as a place where maybe they take one zero day and they just want to get a little bit of, uh, of what the capital's like, what would you suggest? How might you invest that one precious zero day in the capital? Well, it's cliche, but if someone hasn't been here before, mm-hmm. you just can't beat the National Mall. I mean, it's beautiful. You've got free museums of all stripes to visit. You know, if you talk to your one of your senators or your congressperson beforehand, you can get a tour of the Capitol, you can get a tour of the White House. You can't go wrong going to the mall, and that's obviously more than a day, but it would definitely give you a great flavor. And then there's so many interesting neighborhoods in all four quadrants of the city. So if someone wanted to stay an extra day or something, I would I would really recommend maybe getting a, a guidebook or talking to me or someone else who lives in this area, and, and we could figure out you know what their interests are. And if they've already been to the mall before, they have other desires, then we could certainly help them out and put them together with uh, some cool places. I'm imagining myself with my full pack walking through the mall and getting all kinds of odd reactions. How do people in D.C. react to through hikers walking through the Capitol? You know, I don't have the experience of seeing... Actually, I take that back. I was on my way to work through Georgetown one morning, and we had two through hikers who were visiting from 
a European country, and I can't remember which one, maybe Germany. Mm -hmm. And because I knew that they were on the trail, I recognized them because, exactly, backpacks in Georgetown was kind of unusual. (laughs) And I said, hey, are you Dean and Irene? And they're like, yes. And so uh, that was really fun. That was my one experience just happening upon the through hikers. Well, a couple things. I think folks hopefully, you know, have a a place to stay Mm -hmm. and can ditch their you know, full gear for the time they want to walk around town. And if not, it's kind of like the rest of the trail where you're going through metropolitan areas or cities. Yeah, you're going to invite a lot of questions from a lot of people who don't see this all the time. Yeah, People are curious. You know, you can share with them that you're going across the country on this cool trail. But I probably shouldn't pitch my tent in the mall, right? Oh, unfortunately, <laughs> that is not permitted. All right. I'll I'll keep that in mind. This is why you talk to the experts beforehand. (laughs) So maybe we can wrap up here. Fortunately, you don't have to get too involved in the the political process with the ADT. But just from your perspective, having been involved in the promotion of it, doing your work with the board and as a state coordinator, why is the ADT an important developmental initiative for America? What does it offer to this country that, that maybe we don't otherwise have? It's really all about connections, as I mentioned earlier, you know, connections between trails, connections between people. It's just such a positive thing, a positive endeavor. And I I just think that anything that we can do that symbolizes connectedness and unity across this country is, Mm -hmm. is very helpful. And the idea that this is promoting folks to get out in nature, to be a little healthier, to meet their neighbors. You don't have to do the whole thing. You can just say, when I'm on the CNO Canal, mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking, hey, I'm on part of the American Discovery Trail. This is really cool. Awesome. Thanks for talking with me, Donna. I really have enjoyed getting to hear about your experience on the road and then also your work in D.C. Thanks, Dave. I really appreciate it. Alexander Lostein is the school programs manager at the Maryland Historical Society, the state's oldest continuously operating cultural institution. And he joins me now to talk about the state of Maryland. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be able to talk with you. And we'll talk a lot about specific places along the American Discovery Trails route, but maybe we can start by zooming out big picture. All of the American colonies have different stories. Could you tell me a little bit about the distinct nature of Maryland's colonial origins and how those might compare to its neighboring colonies? Compared to its neighboring colonies, Maryland is kind of the middle child. So Virginia was 1607, I believe, and Pennsylvania was 1681. Mm -hmm. Maryland was settled in about 1634. That charter that the Maryland colonists had stated that they controlled the lands north of the Virginia colony and south of the New England colony, but more specifically, like the 40th parallel. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, that's going to create issues a little bit later on. (laughs) But what made Maryland different from Virginia is when Virginia was founded, it was settled by the Virginia Company. And so its early goals was economic. Maryland, on the other hand, was settled as a place for religious freedoms for Catholics, just like Pennsylvania, kind of. Pennsylvania was founded for religious freedom as well. But in Maryland, it was primarily for Catholics. Interesting thing about Maryland in its early colonial times is it was founded by the Calvert family, 
George Calvert, the Lord Baron of Baltimore, and that's where the name Baltimore comes from. Mm-hmm. He turned in his title for basically a charter to settle the colony. He died before the colony was found, but his sons took over. And his son Cecil Calvert came over on the Ark, which was the main ship that most people came over on. But an interesting thing about Maryland is it was founded, or Cecil Calvert was trying to run it as a feudalistic state versus what you see in Virginia where, you know, you have the central government or in Pennsylvania where you have a very similar thing. And he kind of ran that from about 1634 to 1638. But in 1638, he was actually forced to govern under English laws rather than the feudalistic state. But interesting thing about Maryland's colonial history is the religious aspect of it. There was a Religious Toleration Act that was passed in the late 1640s, about 1649, and it gave religious freedom to all Christians. It was all individuals who believed in Christ. Jewish individuals wouldn't actually receive those religious freedoms until much later on. Hmm. But it was barred a year later, and then it came back. But the religious strife is kind of interesting. Maryland was a Catholic colony, but a lot of what was taking place in Maryland reflected what was also going on in England. So in the 1640s, there was an uprising of Maryland Protestants led by William Claiborne, who was a Virginian. And he actually ends up taking over and controlling Maryland. And then two years later, Cecil Calvert comes back with a Catholic armed force to reassert his control. Hmm. But then in the 1650s, Puritans move up from Virginia, and they settle what is Providence, Maryland, which is now Annapolis, and they revolted against the Cecil family government. And this new government banned Catholics and Anglicans, or those two religions. And then this is kind of at the same time that the English Civil Wars are going on, so you can kind of see that taking place in Maryland. Again, the Calverts try to take control, and there's actually a battle called the Battle of the Severn. The Severn is a river in Maryland, where a Roman Catholic army was defeated by a Puritan army. And that was the mid-1650s. And then the Calvert family once again gained control. And in 1688, when the Catholic King James II was deposed and replaced by a Protestant king, Maryland Protestants once again overthrew the Catholic rule and banned that Toleration Act that I talked about (laughs) earlier. And then these Maryland Protestants set the Church of England as the main official Church of Maryland, and Catholics are barred from voting. And then Catholics really actually don't have a lot of religious freedoms until the American Revolution, until that period when the whole idea of religious freedom comes about. So comparing that to Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. where William Penn is very open to all religions and religious freedom, Maryland is very set in its lack of religious toleration in its early years. You have a lot of the fighting between Puritans and Catholics and Anglicans and Catholics. And so a lot of what is going on in England with the English Civil Wars are being reflected in Maryland. Hmm. But when it comes to economy, Maryland's economy is very similar to Virginia. Again, they're growing tobacco as a cash crop. And then most of this wealth is along the eastern shore or along the Chesapeake Bay, where these large plantations are being grown. Initially, These plantations are relying on indentured servants. Those were actually most of the people who came over on the Ark and the Dove when they founded Maryland. Mm -hmm. But actually in 1663, Maryland legalizes slavery. So the indentured servants start switching over to enslaved individuals. That The transition from indentured servitude to enslavement starts to begin around that time. Mm -hmm. Another interesting thing about Maryland in its colonial period is it was a penal colony for England. 
So, you know, there's a lot of weird religious fighting and stories about early Maryland history that not a lot of people know. Yeah, no kidding. Did all of that dissipate following the revolution, or did that religious tension carry forward for decades beyond that? It kind of dissipated after the American Revolution. There's not a lot of, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of bad blood at that time. I think during the American Revolution, most people start to realize that this new country is trying to create religious freedom and just freedom in general and civil rights. And other colonies are kind of doing better than Maryland is at that job. Mm -hmm. And I think Maryland realizes that they have to cut this out. But basically, from 1715-ish to the American Revolution, Protestants are controlling Maryland. And after the American Revolution is when you kind of get that birth of freedom. From there, let's shift over to a handful of landing spots along the American Discovery Trail. And the first one The ADT enters Maryland in really quite rural areas. It crosses the Bay Bridge, and it arrives in Annapolis. It's the capital of the state, and, you know, I I memorized that growing up in in service to a geography quiz. But if you'd asked me for most of my adult life, what's the most important city in, in Maryland, it would have been Baltimore. But as I've started to read up about Annapolis in preparation for this trip, it strikes me as a really nice exemplar of Maryland as a whole. And it just seems like a place loaded with history. So could you talk about that? How does Annapolis's history mirror some of Maryland's key historical developments? As I mentioned earlier, the Puritans who came up from Virginia founded Providence, Maryland, which is Annapolis. So that early religious strife is definitely present in early Annapolis history. But it was renamed Annapolis in the late 1600s, I think about 1694. And that's when it became the capital of Maryland. Eastern Maryland has always been kind of the part of the state focused around the Chesapeake Bay. Mm-hmm. And Annapolis, at least in Maryland's early history, was where that story was coming from. So Annapolis, it's early industry. It was a small town before the American Revolution. But you had some shipbuilding. You had some oyster fishing. You had some trade that was going through Annapolis. And those are actually key themes that are going to transfer to Baltimore later in Maryland's history. Mm -hmm. But early on, Annapolis is the trading center and the major city of Maryland. Now, when you look at the American Revolution, Annapolis has a very interesting connection to just the American Revolution in general. So that is where the Committee of Safety in Maryland was centered. So Mm -hmm. they were calling out troops from all over Maryland, And they were sending them up to New York, sending them to other places. But interesting thing is Annapolis, and especially the state capital, was where the Treaty of Paris was signed and where Washington resigned his command as commander-in-chief of the army. So it is at one point a capital of the United States, and they like to call themselves the first peacetime capital of the United States, (laughs) which is true in some senses. But a lot of Annapolis's history has been based around trade and oysters and shipping and shipbuilding. And that is kind of a part of Maryland that Annapolis really represents well. The interesting thing about Maryland is there's a really big difference between Western Maryland and the Eastern part of Maryland. Mm -hmm. Western Maryland is very hilly. Eastern Maryland is very flat. And so Annapolis is very representative of the Eastern Maryland But the Western Maryland has always felt a little disconnected from Annapolis. And that is actually kind of interesting when you hit the Civil War period, because during the Civil War, there wasn't a lot of fighting that was happening in Annapolis. But Annapolis, 
kind of mirrors what's going on in Maryland at that time, where the Union Army realizes that they have to keep Annapolis, and they actually have troops stationed there the entire Civil War. The Naval Academy leaves, but there are troops that are stationed in Annapolis, and it's actually where the main parole camp for the Union troops was located. So in the sense of keeping Maryland in the Union, the Union soldiers based in Annapolis kind of represent what is going on in Maryland and the need to keep Maryland in the Union. When you hit the civil rights period of the 1940s, one thing to understand is in Maryland, the civil rights period actually begins in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. It's fairly different from in the South, where you know the late 40s, 50s, and 60s are the key areas. In Maryland, it's earlier. In the civil rights period, in 1942, there was a African-American soldier named Thomas Brodus who was trying to hail a cab, and none of the white cabs would pick him up, so he got into technically what was a non-legitimate cab, okay. and a police officer stopped him, and this is happening in Baltimore, and a police officer stops him and forces him to try and get into a white-owned cab, and the police officer ends up killing him. But civil rights activists actually marched on Annapolis. It was the state capital, and they marched on Annapolis to fight for civil rights. So it's really an interesting city when you look at the many stories that are happening around Annapolis. Mm -hmm. And today, Annapolis has a great collection of those stories in a lot of different institutions. The Maryland State House, you can take a tour of it, but there's also the Maryland State Archives there, which have a great collection of stories highlighting Maryland history, but also highlighting Annapolis history as well. But yeah, so Annapolis, while today is kind of a smaller city Mm -hmm. in Maryland, its history mirrors a lot of what happened all throughout And it still maintains a huge naval presence. It's it's a central part of the city. Right. I believe the Naval Academy is one of the largest employers of Annapolis. Every year you have new naval cadets coming in. The city kind of revolves around the State House and the government and the Naval Academy. If you ever walk through Annapolis, you see Navy flags everywhere. If you're there during a school year, you see the naval influence there heavily. Mm Mm-hmm. You mentioned the state building, of course. Are there two, three other building structures that are of significant historical value that you'd suggest people check out as they're passing through the city? Yeah, definitely the U.S. Naval Academy. They have a museum, and they also offer tours. So that's a really interesting place to check out. There's also the Banneker-Douglas Museum, which talks about African-American history. The Banneker part of that title comes from Benjamin Banneker, who was an African-American astronomer during the early American period. And he is writing almanacs. He is sending these almanacs out to farmers, to individuals, and he's brilliant when it comes to science. And then the Douglas has to deal with Frederick Douglass. But that is a very interesting museum on African-American history. And then another one is the William Peka House. William Peka was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence from Maryland, and his house is preserved there as well. All right, yeah, there's plenty to do for sure. So with Annapolis, we have the Navy, and then the American Discovery Trail proceeds into Bowie, which developed as a rail hub. It seems like the railroad had a profound effect on Maryland. Could you tell me about it? Yeah, definitely. The rail history in Maryland is really deep. The first place to start is the B&O rail line. The first rail track in the United States was laid in Maryland. It was laid from the Baltimore Harbor to Ellicott Mills, Maryland. Ellicott Mills is now Ellicott City, and the oldest train station in the United States is actually in Ellicott City, Maryland. But the thing about rail in Maryland is if you look at a map of the United States, Maryland, and specifically Baltimore, is 
farther west than, say, Philadelphia and New York. And that gives it advantages when it comes to trade. At this time, in the early 1800s, Baltimore is the second or third largest city in the United States. And it's being beat by trade from the Erie Canal. The Erie Canal is connecting New York to the Midwest, and it's allowing New York to grow as a state and as a city. And the only way that Maryland is really connected to the Midwest is by the National Road. And in the 1830s, moving items by carriage and by wagons is long. It's a process that is expensive. The National Road had tolls on it. And the Erie Canal is providing New York with some opportunities that Maryland isn't. And so the Baltimore Ohio Railroad begins operations in 1830. The first stone of the rail line was actually laid by Charles Carroll, who was the last surviving signer of the Declaration of Independence. And it actually wasn't that big of an event. Not a lot of people went. But the B&O was headquartered in Maryland. One of their goals was to compete with the canal systems. And so the one thing that the B&O did is it connected Maryland to the Midwest, to the Ohio Valley. The B and B&O is Baltimore, and the O is Ohio. And that represented the Ohio Valley area. And so the rail system actually grew Maryland's economy immensely. The oyster canneries were able to now ship oysters all across the United States. They were able to ship supplies and tools and other industries that were happening here. They were able to ship it all across the United States. And money and supplies and materials were coming into Maryland. There's a great map that we have at the Historical Society. It's actually available at the Library of Congress as well. It's a 1869 map by the Saxe Company. And you can see Baltimore. It is a massive industrial town, and the rail lines are actually central in that picture. You can see how big the rails are. That's a map from 1869, and that's important to note because during the Civil War, the Baltimore and Ohio rail line was called Mr. Lincoln's Railroad. During the war, the B&O is shipping freight, soldiers, supplies. They're shipping them north and south. They're growing immensely. The rail lines are growing immensely to connect all parts. The Baltimore Ohio rail line is actually getting very, very wealthy off of the Civil War. And so the ease of access by train and the fact that the train system was started here really makes Maryland's economy grow. So the Baltimore Ohio rail line was bought up by CSX, but today rails actually still play a very important part to Maryland's history. So CSX uses this area a lot to ship supplies north and south. They're using a lot of the old Baltimore Ohio rail lines, but Baltimore and some parts of southern Maryland are on the Amtrak's northeast regional border. So you have a lot of connection by train between Baltimore, New York, Philadelphia, D.C., Boston, all these other major cities along the East Coast. So rail is actually still somewhat tied to Maryland, but not as much as it was during the Baltimore, Ohio time period. So we've got Navy, we've got rail, and then continuing along the ADT, this is the one that really surprised me. It turns out that College Park Airport is the world's oldest continuously operated airport, and I know nothing about it. So what's the story? This comes in the early 1900s. I believe 1909 was when it actually was founded. The Wright brothers had their test flights in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. They received interest from the U.S. Army. At that time, the U.S. Army was doing aviation. Well, when I say at that time, they haven't done aviation before that time. <laughs> but it, it is the U.S. Army that is taking over aviation. And so the U.S. Army is fascinated by what the Wright brothers are doing. They had been trying to buy a Wright airplane. 
And they set up a contract that they buy a Wright airplane, and then one of the Wright brothers has to train two pilots to fly the plane. They actually, by the time the pilots flew, they had about three hours of training, um, which (laughs) is nothing compared to what it takes today. But the College Park Airport was chosen for a couple of reasons. One, it was far enough away from a major city. And the reason they chose that is at the first location, which was farther south, they had hundreds of people just coming and watching what they were trying to do. So they wanted a place that was a little bit farther away from a major city. That didn't stop people from coming out and watching, but it did deter them a little bit. And the second is that it was on a Baltimore, Ohio rail line, so they could easily ship the equipment up there if need be. So in October of 1909, the Army cleared brush, built a temporary hangar, and began flight operations. The first two pilots to be trained were Lieutenant Frank Lamb and then Lieutenant Frederick Humphreys. And so, like I said, with three hours of training, they were able to get into one of the Wright brothers' planes and begin flying. But actually, the airfield is the world's oldest continuously operating airport, but it was one of the major airports of the U.S. Army in the early period of aviation. And there were a lot of firsts that were taking place. For example, the first woman passenger to ever fly. That took place at the College Park Airport. The first testing of bomb site devices happened there. The first bomb that was ever dropped happened there. The first machine gun test on a plane ever happened there. But military operations were transferred to Texas in 1912. But then the first airmail service started there. So it had a lot of firsts besides just the first flight in the first airport. Mm-hmm. It had a lot of first in its history. Today, it's a museum. It's also still an active airport, but it's close to D.C., so apparently pilots have to have background checks in order to fly into that <laughs> airport. Gotcha. And then to complete the transportation discussion, we'll skip ahead on the ADT to the other side of Washington, D.C., where the route joins the CNO towpath. And so now we're talking about canals. And what's the story behind the CNO canal? This has a very interesting story. So basically, the CNO Canal, the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal, was created as a response to the Erie Canal, right? It was similar to the Baltimore and Ohio Rail Line. It was created as a way to supply D.C., but also just move goods along the Potomac. Its goal was to connect D.C. to the Pittsburgh area, to the Appalachian area. And it was coming at a time when canals were very popular, but an interesting thing about it is when the canal came about, the moment they started breaking ground, it was already outdated. I think it was scheduled to cost around $22 million to complete, and it broke ground in July of 1828. And one of the first people to break ground was President John Quincy Adams. But on the exact same day that this is breaking ground, the Baltimore, Ohio broke ground as well. It was the exact same day. And so that's why the canal was kind of outdated from the start. Basically, the CNO and the BNO were racing to the Ohio Valley, and the first race was basically to Cumberland, Maryland, which is one of the last major cities before you hit the Appalachian Mountains and you go into the Ohio Valley. And the canal reached the Cumberland in 1850, but the Baltimore and Ohio train had already been there eight years before. Oh, no. Right. So by the time the canal reached Cumberland, Maryland, the Baltimore and Ohio rail line was already in the Ohio Valley. They were already outdated from the beginning. The canal never went past Cumberland, Maryland. And 
It was mainly used for transporting bulk amounts of coal, lumber, flour, other items from the Appalachian region to D.C. Now, it did have a period in the 1870s as D.C. is starting to industrialize that it became very popular and that it actually turned some nice profits. But that ended in the 1880s. One thing about the canal is it was susceptible to floods. And so a lot of its time it was dealing with floods. In 1889, there was a massive flood, and it damaged a lot of the locks, and it damaged a lot of the canal portions. And so they halted operations for about a year and a half, and they needed revenue. So in order to get revenue, they put the CNO Canal up for sale. And the three major bidders were rail companies, and the company that won was the Baltimore and Ohio Rail Line. The only reason they wanted that is for them to be able to put train lines along the CNO Canal. So it's kind of an interesting and sad story where it's this technology that is very popular but is out of date, and they're racing against the people who would eventually buy them. And the B&O actually ran the canal for another three decades, and then a flood in the 1920s just kind of shut the canal down altogether. So it is kind of a sad story, but it is a national park, and they have really, really nice hiking trails. There are these old houses that are along it that you can look at. They would have been maybe the lock owners' houses or just people who were working along the canal. There are a lot of towns that are right on it. But the National Park does a great job at maintaining the canal and maintaining the hiking trails along it. At least we got something out of it. It doesn't sound like it was a prudent right. financial move. Right. While on the CNO, the American Discovery Trail, you mentioned it passes by a number of towns, and there are a couple of places that are deeply linked to the Civil War. So one preceding it, Harper's Ferry across the Potomac, actually in West Virginia, and then one from deep in the conflict itself, the Antietam Battleground. So I want to ask you a couple questions related to those. The first one is, you touched briefly on Maryland's situation in the Civil War, but it's interesting because it still permitted slavery but remained with the Union could you talk more about the specific situation in the state leading into the war and how the war played out within its borders? Definitely. So yeah, Maryland was a slave state, and it was still part of the Union. Now, Maryland has a very interesting story leading up to the Civil War, during the Civil War, and actually after. And leading up to the Civil War, Maryland's location is a prime location for the Underground Railroad. Because just north of Maryland, you have Pennsylvania, which is a free state. You have the Mason-Dixon line, which was actually created to try and end the fighting between Pennsylvania and Maryland about borders. But the Mason-Dixon line is the marker at that time between a slave state and a free state. And so before the Civil War, Maryland is a slave state, and you have a lot of slavery in Maryland, not as large as some of the southern states, but you have a fairly large enslaved population, but at the same time in Baltimore, you have about 25,000 free African Americans who are living there. Baltimore has the largest free population of any southern city in the United States at that time. So you have a lot of free population living in Baltimore, you have a lot of enslaved population on the eastern shore, and you have the influence of the Underground Railroad. So a lot of people forget, well, I guess maybe not now because the movie Harriet has come out, but Harriet Tubman is from Dorchester County, Maryland. Mm. And she actually only goes up and down Maryland to rescue people. She's not going to the Deep South. She's really just staying in Maryland, and she rescues 70 people from slavery. Frederick Douglass is from Talbot County, Maryland. So before the Civil War, you have a lot of slavery, but you also have a lot of activism to try and end slavery. And then you mentioned Harper's Ferry, and John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry in October of 1859 
actually made Maryland slave owners fearful because, one, it was very close to them. Two, it was a white individual who was trying to create a slave rebellion. And three, you have units from D.C. and Frederick who are going to try and put the rebellion out. So it hits very, very close to home. And some people actually say that John Brown's raid sped up the Civil War. But during the Civil War in Maryland, the Confederates in South Carolina fire on Fort Sumter. And Lincoln calls for troops to come to Washington, D.C. and protect the city. And in order to do that, they're passing through Baltimore and through Maryland. And one thing to realize is Maryland is a pro-Confederate state at that time. There's a lot of wealth based on slaves. There are a lot of slave owners. There are a lot of people who identify with the Southern cause. And so on April 19th of 1861, soldiers from the 6th Massachusetts Infantry, they arrive at President Street Station in Baltimore. And the way it worked is the train stopped at President Street Station, but then the cars would switch onto a train at Camden Station. And so the cars switch onto Pratt Street where there are rails. And as these soldiers are moving, a mob starts to surround the troops. And they actually block the rail line. So the cars are sent back to President Street Station. And then the soldiers from the 6th Massachusetts Infantry are forced to march across Pratt Street. As they're marching, the mob becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. They start shouting at them. They start screaming at them. They start throwing bricks and other objects at them. They actually start pulling up paving stones from the street to throw at these soldiers. And then a shot is fired. And a nervous commander orders his soldiers to return fire. In this, what is called the Pratt Street Riot, there are eight rioters and one bystander who are killed and three soldiers who are killed but you have 24 soldiers who are wounded and countless number of civilians. They actually don't know how many civilians were injured. But these Massachusetts troops then race to Camden Station, and the only reason they're able to get there is because the police step in. Now, the police were pro-Confederate, but they didn't want any more bloodshed happening. And so, as a result, Lincoln realizes the situation in Maryland, and he actually, during his election, he didn't receive very many votes at all from Maryland. And he had to pass through Maryland in order to come to his inauguration, and he did that in the middle of the night because he didn't want to be surrounded and mobbed by Marylanders. As a result of the Pratt Street riot, Lincoln suspends habeas corpus, the right to fair trial, in Maryland, and basically sets Maryland under martial law the entire rest of the war. There's a hill in the inner harbor of Baltimore called Federal Hill, and there's a picture of Union troops on that hill with cannons actually facing towards the city rather than facing away from the city. So Maryland is under, in a sense, martial law the entire time. Leaders who are pro-Confederate are arrested, sent to prison camps in the north. But Lincoln actually realizes that he needs to keep Maryland. And interesting thing is Chief Justice Taney, he actually rules a case called Ex Parte versus Merriman that argues that what Lincoln did was unconstitutional. But an interesting thing is the Congress at that time then recreates the rules to allow Lincoln to remove habeas corpus from Maryland. So for the rest of the Civil War, Maryland is kind of an occupied state, but you have a lot of fighting that takes place in Maryland during the Civil War. Now, Antietam is one of the most famous, but leading up to Antietam, you have the Maryland Campaign of 1862. And Basically, the Confederate forces are trying to push into Maryland, and so they start on September 12th, they attack Harper's Ferry. So there was a lot of fighting around Harper's Ferry. They actually capture one of the largest amounts of Union troops of the Civil War. They're captured at Harper's Ferry. 
Then you have a Battle of South Mountain as the Confederate forces are trying to push into Maryland. And then you have Antietam on September 17th, which is a single bloodiest day in American history. And that battle kind of pushes the Confederate forces out of Maryland. They start to retreat, and then there's actually a battle in Shepherdstown, Virginia at that time, that is kind of a retreat battle. But during the Civil War, you also have Union Confederate troops passing through Maryland all the time. You know, going up to the Battle of Gettysburg, you have a lot of fighting. You have the Battle of Boonesboro on the retreat from Gettysburg. In 1864, the Confederate forces are trying to relieve tension off of Richmond and Petersburg, so they attack Monocacy on July 9th, and then they win there, and they try and come down Maryland and attack Fort Stevens, which is a fort protecting Washington, D.C., And so throughout the Civil War, there's a ton of fighting that is taking place and a ton of troop movements that are taking place in Maryland. And actually, interesting thing is Maryland raised both Union and Confederate forces. I believe it's about 60,000 Union troops and about 30,000 Confederate forces were raised in Maryland. But also, Maryland is raising United States colored troops as well. There are regiments that are being raised in Baltimore. One well-known one is the 4th United States Colored Troops. They are being raised, and they are going to fight. So Maryland is a very interesting state during the Civil War, but then after the war ends, Maryland is where Mary Surratt and John Wilkes Booth are planning the assassination. Oh, man. Mary Surratt is from Surrattsville, Maryland. John Wilkes Booth is from a very famous DC acting family, but you have a lot of the planning that is taking place in Maryland for that. So the first shots of the American Civil War happen in Baltimore, and in a sense, the last shot of the American Civil War happens in DC, but is planned in Maryland, the assassination of Lincoln. But an interesting thing is since Maryland never left the Union, Reconstruction didn't really affect Maryland, because Reconstruction only affected states that were in rebellion. And I should have mentioned this earlier, but the Emancipation Proclamation doesn't apply to Maryland. The Emancipation Proclamation says only states that are in open rebellion, that's where slavery is ending, but Maryland technically wasn't in open rebellion. So the story of Maryland during the Civil War is very complicated, but very fascinating one. Yeah, no kidding. I want to look a little bit more at Antietam just because it's proximal to the American Discovery Trail. It's a very minor detour. Seems like an easy thing to visit. What will people see at the battleground? What is left to check out? They have a very well-done museum there. But the one thing that strikes me about Antietam is how close the combat was that day. They have a driving and a hiking trail, and you start at the cornfield. And it's actually very fascinating to see how close the lines were to each other and where the fighting was happening. And they still grow corn there. And then you go to Bloody Lane, and you see exactly the defenses that the Confederate forces had. And so that's what's interesting, is seeing how the battle shifted through the entire day, but also how close the combat was and how poorly, at least in our modern minds, the fighting was and the tactics were. It's a very weird battlefield to walk around, not in the sense of it's poorly designed, but because you're standing in locations where so much death and destruction happened. But it is definitely something people should check out because it really does highlight a major moment in the American Civil War. We skipped over D.C., so let's go back to that, which is obviously not technically part of Maryland, but it seems like it must have had a big impact on the state when this was suddenly created out of scratch. How has D.C.'s creation affected Maryland? 
When you look at the area, it wasn't a large area, but over time, the influence from the D.C. area has really affected Maryland. An interesting thing that people don't realize is the location of D.C. is one reason why Baltimore is involved in the War of 1812, because the British Army comes to burn D.C., and then they head up to Baltimore, which is close by, where a lot of the privateers are based. So it includes Maryland in the War of 1812, and then, as we just talked about, it really includes Maryland during the Civil War. As D.C. grew in influence, so did Southern Maryland and the D.C. region. And so today, D.C.'s growth is one reason why the College Park Airport was settled here. It's also why today you have a lot of military, government, independent contractors, and a lot of wealth in that region. As D.C. grew in influence and as D.C. has grown, that southern part of Maryland has really gotten a lot of opportunities and a lot of jobs and a lot of new tech that has come to that region. So it really has increased Maryland's standing in the United States as a state. Alex, thank you very much. This has been tremendously informative, and I, I really appreciate you making the time to talk with me. Yeah, I'm glad that we had this chance to talk. One fun source to check out to get in a Maryland frame of mind is Your Maryland with Rick Cottom, a series produced by the state's public radio station, WYPR, available for download in podcast form or compiled in print and available for purchase. The podcast episodes are tight little vignettes, with each telling a human interest story that includes some big names and some otherwise obscure subjects. Here's how Cottom describes a moment in Explorer John Smith's scouting trip into the Chesapeake Bay. Quote, Smith amused himself by spearing fish with his sword. When he speared a ray, she suddenly stung him with a most poisoned sting of two or three inches long, bearded like a saw on each side. The barb went deep into his wrist, leaving a small hole that didn't bleed but did turn blue and radiated excruciating pain. Four hours later, his arm had swollen horribly, as high as his shoulder. Smith was directing his own funeral preparations, when the party's doctor stuck a probe covered with a, quote, precious oil into the little blue hole. Miraculously, the swelling went down. Smith ate the ray for dinner, end quote. With hundreds of episodes in place, the series has been running for nearly two decades now. There's no shortage of stories to hear from Maryland. And with subjects as varied as H.L. Mencken's approach to journalism, Lefty Grove's pitching origins, the exciting 17th century life of Mary Clocker, airplane races in the 1920s, and the murderous career of John Dandy, well, I think you'll find something you'll want to listen to on your walk. That's all for this episode of Sea to Shining Sea. Thanks to Peter Shutley and Donna Loop for speaking with me about the American Discovery Trail through Maryland and D.C. Thanks as well to Alexander Lothstein for fielding a tremendously varied list of hopelessly broad questions about Maryland's history. Be sure to check out the Maryland Historical Society's website at mdhs.org for more information about their museum and publications. Sea to Shining Sea is available on SoundCloud, on Apple and Google Podcasts, through my DaveXUSA Facebook page, and on my personal site, DaveWilson.com. West Virginia is next. Stay tuned.